gastro, basically gastric emptying. So emptying of fluids from the stomach to the intestine dramatically goes down when you're vigorously exercising. So if you start pushing too much water into an athlete, especially during vigorous exercise, you're gonna expand their stomach and lead to bloating, abdominal pain, and actually decrease performance by consuming too much water. Welcome to the Seamland Podcast. I'm your host, Seam Lund, and our guest today is Dr. James DiNicolantonio. Dr. James and I co-authored another book called Win, Achieve Peak Performance, Optimize Recovery, and Become a Champion. You can get Win from Amazon. This episode is brought to you by the world's most recognized probiotic supplement, Seed. Seed's Daily Symbiotic is a pre- and probiotic two-in-one capsule that supports your gut health, skin, digestion, and so much more. Seed isn't a cocktail of random strains of bacteria that do nothing. It contains 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains, which makes Seed the first of its kind. Seed's Daily Symbiotic is the only probiotic supplement I'm taking regularly because of how much it's backed by research. I notice the benefits it has on my digestion and overall energy. You can get a 15% discount of Seed's Daily Symbiotic by using the code SEAM15 at seed.com forward slash SEAM15. That's S-I-I-M 15 at seed.com forward slash SEAM15. SEAM, good to be here. Yeah, it's... uh another podcast with you and I because we wrote co-authored another book a third one <laughs> with with uh, us and uh, this one is going to be about uh, win and like mostly optimizing physical performance and uh, fitness and that kind of thing so uh, you know yeah maybe let's start with uh, because it's a somewhat of a different turn from our previous books so uh, what let's say what was the main motivation for you to let's say propose the idea of writing um, this kind of a book yeah I think um you know, a lot of it stems from my first book, The Salt Vex, and how do you translate sort of like the benefits of salt into athletic performance? Um, because I don't know of a single book that's ever really gone into um, how to actually improve performance using salt and fluids, like, you know, actually like citing the clinical literature, um, being specific on how to dose it, um, how much, when to take it, how slowly to take it. And so I think um, really the salt fix sort of was a key to kind of launching this book on athletic performance because um, I've used that knowledge to help a lot of athletes out to improve their performance, whether it be in the octagon, in the UFC, or um, NFL players, um, by far and away, getting the salt dosing correct has been the best thing for athletes in regards to improving their performance. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of true that it's very underrated for hydration side and uh, minerals and uh, electrolytes. So you do need them like quite crucially for uh, physical performance. And our book has, uh, I think, yeah, one of the first chapters has like an amazing overview about all the different reasons, uh, you know, why to hydrate and different ways to do it the most optimal way uh, as well. And not just, you know, not only with uh, salt, but also like different kinds of uh, electrolytes and uh, minerals. Yeah, exactly. And there's, we actually cover several different strategies in regards to hydration. So it's not just about like acutely boosting performance, which salt solutions will do that. But we also talk about certain things, um, how to hydrate to improve performance later on, essentially becoming dehydrated, acclimated, and how to do that appropriately and how to rehydrate appropriately. And the adaptations to, con to constant dehydration can actually expand baseline plasma volume and just basically give you a larger, basically tank of fuel to cool yourself off, which is really what salt loading does is it acutely boosts blood volume. And that gives you, we, we need to understand we lose water from our blood volume to dissipate heat by cooling off. So your tank, your blood volume drops dramatically within just five to 10 minutes of vigorous exercise, not just from the loss of fluids from sweat, but there's a competition between blood volume, between the heart the skeletal, the working skeletal muscle and the skin. So, you know, when, when you and I are resting here, um, the blood volume is fine feeding the heart but as we start moving. And as blood is now being pushed towards skeletal muscle and towards the skin to dissipate heat, you're pulling blood volume away from the heart. And that that's the main thing that decreases performance. And we know that because if you actually give IV solutions to athletes and you hold their blood volume normally, you don't see decreases in performance. So we know that blood volume is really controlling a lot of this because it also controls increases in core body temperature through um, 
keeping core body temperature low, much lower if you preload with salt and fluids. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of people may think that, yeah, that just salt will just help with maybe hydration and uh, like muscle contraction and you're not going to get cramps. That's what they usually associate salt with. Uh, but like you said already that it boosts blood volume and plasma volume and uh, even helps to like uh, lower the body temperature that uh, increases during the exercise. And that is like a very crucial part in maintaining the performance uh, doing whatever you're doing uh, in, in terms of physical uh, performance. And uh, a lot of the times people, you know, gas off or they hit the plateau in the performances because of their uh, body temperature rises to a certain limit too high and that the body pushes the break, breaks on. Uh, whereas with salt loading, you're uh, postponing uh, that effect and that threshold uh, where it happens. So it's, yeah, not just only like <laughs> muscle cramps and muscle contractions. It's a quite, yeah, very widespread effects uh, that salt has. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, bringing up muscle cramps, what's interesting, you know, a lot of people just take uh, plain water before performance, but that's actually been shown to increase the susceptibility to um, basically electrically induced muscle cramps because it's depleting your electrolytes when you just take plain water. So you got to be actually careful with plain water, particularly with vigorous exercise. And the reason is, is because gastro, basically gastric emptying. So emptying of fluids from the stomach to the intestine dramatically goes down when you're vigorously exercising. So if you start pushing too much water into an athlete, especially during vigorous exercise, you're going to expand their stomach and lead to bloating, abdominal pain, and actually decrease performance by consuming too much water. And what do, what do I mean by too much water? If you consume between five and 10 ounces of water every 15 minutes during vigorous exercise, that's been shown to decrease athletic performance by two to 3%. So Interestingly enough, though, it increases performance at moderate exercise. That's like one to two hours long. So when you're moderately exercising, consuming water seems to be beneficial. When you're vigorously exercising, basically just small sips of water when you're thirsty is probably the way to go. You don't want to be consuming um, even just five ounces of fluid every 15 minutes, which really isn't that much when you think about it. That will decrease vigorous exercise performance. Mm, gotcha. Uh, but uh, how much salt, let's say, would you require to have let's see, the optimal uh, effects uh, before exercise? Well, so I guess if you're talking about acutely boosting performance, I would say really anywhere from three to 4,300 milligrams of sodium in about 26 to 33.8 ounces of fluid. Now, 33.8 ounces of fluid is a liter. So you're talking about massive amounts of salt and fluid, but you're slowly consuming it over 30 to 60 minutes, and you start about an hour and a half before performance. So it's this slow infusion that reduces the risk of diarrhea, that improves its absorption, that allows basically the blood volume to expand. And then really adding um, glycine, which is an amino acid, has been shown to improve the absorption of salt in fluids. And not only that, glycine reduces core body temperature fairly quickly. So if you take glycine an hour and a half before performance, your core body temp is also going to be down, which, which probably will help with performance as well. And because it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter, it may have additional benefits for actually reducing muscle cramps. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in the book, we also covered these uh, findings and studies that show that higher, much higher salt solutions are better than even the lower ones. So like like you said, the 3,700 to 4,300 milligrams per liter uh, is going to give you more results and better performance than like less than that, like 2,000 milligrams per liter. Or even if you have like very little salt, like 500 milligrams per liter, then that isn't enough to like improve a performance. So you do up, you will see some improvements when you get like, you know, 1,500, 1,800 milligrams. Uh, but the most optimal performance uh, or the better performance will come if you get like 3,700 milligrams, uh, 4,000 uh, milligrams. Right. And it really depends on, are you able to boost blood volume with the solution? So typically if you're, you can get benefits at around 1,800 milligrams of sodium with maybe let's say 20 ounces of fluid, but you're really only going to boost blood volume by about maybe 4%. So you're not, you're not getting the eight to 10% that you really want so if you want to hit higher blood volume expansion, you really need to get to the three to 4,300 milligrams of sodium. And I've had UFC fighters test this. They do see, they do see benefits at 2000 milligrams, 
with like 20 ounces of fluid, but there's better benefits once you start hitting the 3000 milligram mark or higher. Mm -hmm. So 3000 milligrams, that's like, um, how much is that? Like a two tablespoons? Like one and a half, yeah, like one and a half teaspoons of salt. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Like, you know, gotcha. milligrams of sodium. So regular, regular sea salt or what kind of salt? Yeah, Redmond, real salt is great. They have a product called Relight, which includes magnesium and potassium in it. Um, plus you can get it unflavored or you can get it flavored. Um, if you don't want the flavoring, then you can simply, I mean, adding glycine. Glycine has a sweet taste to it. So mm -hmm. um, that can improve the flavor as well. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, what about like glucose? Like a lot of athletes basically carb load with glucose before that. So would the salt help with the, or would the glucose help with the absorption of the sodium? All right. Yeah. <clears throat> this is a key thing that we addressed in the book too. And this is interesting. So it's true. Glucose can improve the absorption of salt, of sodium in particular. The problem is, is that when you spike glucose levels, it then increases diuresis. So you start losing blood volume to the urine after an hour. So in fact, adding simply just like 10 grams of glucose to a liter of fluid um, has been shown to reduce plasma volume compared to just salt in, in solution after an hour. So in other words, since you're doing these salt loadings an hour and a half before, you're actually not getting any of the benefits of the glucose because they start actually going away after an hour yeah. because of the enhanced diuresis. So you actually don't need glucose at all in a solution. It's actually probably going to inhibit performance. You how you carb load is you want to, is you want to use complex carbs about an hour prior. So whether that's from whole foods or whether that's from, there's certain things like um, uh, glycofuse is one, um, Vitargo is another product that has been shown to um, actually improve performance compared to like um, uh, gastrointestinal resistant dextrin and things like that. So things that like, I mean, there's like different tiers of carbs. So a lot of athletes simply just use things like dextrose, which is terrible for your gut microbiota. And it's actually going to drop uh, glucose levels after really quickly. So it's not good for performance. And then some some athletes will use like a more resistant dextrin. And then your, your third, your best tier is things like Vitargo, um, Glycofuse, or just like whole complex carbs um, an hour before performance. And really you wanna probably get around somewhere between 50 and 75 grams of those complex carbs before mm -hmm. vigorous performance that's gonna last like let's say 10, 10 minutes or longer. Gotcha. So that's gonna be one hour before the exercise you consume uh, about 3,000 to 4,000 milligrams of uh, sodium in one liter of water, how much glycine would you need in, in that solution? Yeah, you want to try to probably hit at least three to four grams of glycine um, for the 3,000. And then as you get to the 4,000, you want to probably try to push it more towards five to six grams. This has been studied, like they've, uh, they've done tests on this and it really seems to be about like a, you know, one and a half to two ratio of glycine to sodium. So if you're doing 2000 milligrams of sodium, you want to try to hit around four grams of glycine, 4,000, you want to hit around six grams. It's like one and a half ratio is, is pretty good of glycine to sodium. Gotcha. Um, and no glucose in that solution. Uh, <laughs> just yeah, get the carbs from whole foods. Uh, exactly. mm, but uh, yeah. what, what, what kind of, let's say performance, would it benefit the most like cardio or um, weights or like it doesn't, it doesn't matter any kind of physical performance. This is what's interesting is um, actually you're going to get benefits regardless. Um, if you're talking about straight salt solutions before performance, this will dramatically improve lifting weights as well. Um, because when you start lifting weights, there is a huge push of blood to the skeletal muscle. So if you're lifting weights, your max bench press um, is, definitely going to go up. You're going to have a much better pump. You're going to actually be able to remove waste out of the muscle much better too. So even though the book primarily covers like vigorous exercise, explosive performance, endurance, it also applies, definitely applies to heavy weightlifting as well. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very uh, good chapter about all the, uh, you know, ways to uh, use hydration and electrolytes and the we talked about preloading, but what, what do you do like when you're actually 
during the exercise? Is there something, uh, any benefit to consuming any salt and electrolytes during the exercise? And how do you like post hydrate or, you know, how do you uh, hydrate yourself afterwards? Right. That's a great question. During competition, if you've done the preload, you don't need essentially anything except maybe small sips of water for the first hour because you've already consumed three to 4,000 milligrams of sodium. You're not going to lose that much typically in the first mm -hmm. hour. So after, if you're performing after longer than an hour and you've done the salt preload, then the studies show that about 2,300 milligrams of sodium, which is one teaspoon of salt per liter of fluid consumed is going to improve hydration status. And, and Dr. Uh, Tim Noakes and his colleagues actually published a paper on that, that that, that uh, concentration of fluid is going to basically improve total body water by three quarters of a liter when you do that in endurance training uh, versus like lower sodium solutions or just drinking plain water. Mm. So I think that that rule, if you preload after an hour, 2300 milligrams of sodium per liter is, is probably going to give you more benefits than anything else. Um, if you are, let's say now this is, that's acutely boosting performance. If you're like in a training camp early on and you're feeling good, you're coming in fully hydrated. You want to probably do dehydration acclimation. In other words, you just basically drink small sips of water, which is going to mildly dehydrate you basically dropping your total body weight by one and a half to two and a half percent. And you can, so you basically you weigh yourself before you start training, you weigh yourself afterwards, you want to drop um, weight by about one and a half to two and a half percent. That will lead, and if you continuously do that, that will lead to dehydration acclimation. You'll get all the benefits of um, expanding plasma volume at baseline and all these other adaptations similar to heat acclimation. If you do that, the key is to rehydrate after you become dehydrated acclimated, right? So you just basically consume, um, if, if you've lost, let's say, a liter of fluid, you want to get all that liter of fluid back. Plus, typically you lose about 1200 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid loss. So you basically just rehydrate by um, taking that equation. If you 1200 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid loss, and you can measure this because one liter of fluid weighs a kilogram. So if you lost a kilogram, you've lost a liter of fluid, you make sure to replace and rehydrate with 1200 milligrams of sodium per liter to get it all back. Mm. Yeah, that's, I think, a new concept for a lot of people of uh, dehydration acclimation that you uh, yeah. train yourself to be uh, let's say, competent in performing in dehydrated scenarios so that your body would basically get adapted to it. And uh, it does have like this hormetic effect that you're able to do it uh, much better. And um, yeah, that's a really uh, kind of, I think, new concept for a lot of people because, yeah, we've been taught to just basically drink a lot of water all the time and avoid dehydration. But uh, there's like periodic, episodic uh, dehydration can actually just make your body more adapt to it. And uh, actually, it has a performance enhancing benefit as well after you, as long as you're basically yeah, rehydrating um, after the fact. Right. I mean, even adding sauna sessions after a mildly dehydrating event has been shown to increase performance, um, vigorous exercise performance by about four minutes. In other words, these athletes, when they did sauna session, like a 30 minute sauna session and they, and they became heat acclimated. So they basically did that for two weeks. Um, if you do that after a mildly dehydrating event in particular, you're basically, um, they were able to run 14 minutes before doing this. And then at, at a, basically a vigorous pace, they were able to increase that by four minutes. So they were able to basically run 18 minutes longer. So dehydration acclimation, heat acclimation, that can all improve performance by anywhere from typically seven to 20%. Salt solutions can increase endurance by 25 to 52%. So nothing really touches preloading with salt and fluids, but you can still get additive benefits by adding all these things that we're talking about. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah, like, um, let's say in a average person who is not an athlete for them, uh, let's say maybe like an easy way to improve that or achieve that dehydration acclimation would be to just not always uh, basically hydrate and not always hyper hyper right. hydrate beforehand and actually train a little bit in sometimes like easier sessions, easier training sessions to train a bit uh, dehydrated uh, a little bit so that your body would develop this acclimation. 
Yeah, the key. So it really what our book also talks about is like sort of like bouncing back and forth with these regiments. And, and that includes um, bouncing back and forth between exercising in a fasted state and exercising in a carb loaded state because it's going to make you metabolically flexible. Same thing with salt solutions. You don't always want to like perform. You always come in full, typically fully hydrated, especially if you're going to be doing like a hard training session. You always want to be fully hydrated. That doesn't mean you preload with salt. Um, with those high amounts, but like you may want to take like a thousand milligrams of sodium and 12 ounces of fluid 60 minutes before performance. That's not going to really boost your blood volume that much, but that way you're coming in fully hydrated. And yes, you do the dehydration and acclimation, but if you're, if you're coming into training camp and you feel fatigued, you, you probably want to hit 2000 milligrams of sodium and 20 ounces of fluid. So that way you'll still induce dehydration, but you still want to have a good workout. So it's like this balance, right? Of like, how do I feel if I feel okay? Okay, let's let's do a nice dehydrating event. Or if you don't feel that good coming into training, you really probably want to throw on some sodium in fluids. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, what about the heat? You mentioned that as well. Um, so how can we? Uh, how can heat acclimation benefit to performance? So the studies basically show daily heat acclimation is better than let's say every other day or every third day. Um, but you can still, if you get, a, 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 if you average four and a half sessions of sauna every week, if you do that for three weeks and you get about 13 total sessions, um, then you're heat acclimated. That, that that's, that's what a lot of the regimens do. The key with heat acclimation is you want to hit a certain internal temperature. Usually you want to hit about 101 and typically you want to try to hit a max heart rate of about 140. And that's going to be harder and harder to do as you become more heat acclimated. So like week one, you don't have to do as long or as high of heat, but week three, in order to hit those acclimation benefits, you're going to have to go in longer. You're going to have to go and start starting temperature higher to hit, you know, those certain goals. So you actually become heat acclimated and you know, you can start hydrating during the session because you're not going to really absorb the fluids and, and things like that until later on. Um, especially if you, if you're doing this post exercise, it's okay to start hydrating during the sauna session, because it's really, you're still going to induce the dehydration and then the fluids and stuff will come on board probably 30 minutes after that. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, but, uh, from a performance side directly, then, uh, if you're, let's say you're used to taking a sauna, then uh, this acclimation towards that heat, uh, towards this higher level of heat will also uh, reduce your core temperature during exercise again. So because you're ad adapted to the heat, that will be basically another way of keeping your body core temperature uh, lower during exercise because your body's used to kind of the higher amounts of heat. So can you maybe talk a little about uh, that as well? Sure. When you become... Um, heat acclimated. Essentially, there, there are many adaptations that occur. One of the best ones is that you do, you do get a, an increase in baseline plasma volume if you, you are rehydrating afterwards. So if, you, if, if you're not rehydrating well, you can actually mess up your plasma and reduce plasma volume with sauna. So you got to be careful. You got to know what you're doing. But if you're, if you're becoming heat acclimated and you're making sure to rehydrate afterwards, it can expand plasma volume it reduces baseline core body temperature. So this is almost like pre-cooling the body, but using heat acclimation um, and, the, and the adaptations from that to actually have a, have, when you have a lower baseline core body temperature, essentially you have a, a larger storage capacity for heat before you hit a critical core temperature. So this is key because once you hit a critical core temperature, you start shutting down enzymes like phosphofructokinase, pyruvate kinase, you don't produce as much ATP, you get basically muscle shutdown. You also, when you're heat acclimated, your sweat is more dilute. You stop losing as much electrolytes as an adaptive mechanism, which makes sense. Like your body doesn't want to lose so many electrolytes um, because it's already lost a lot. So when the sweat becomes more dilute, you, it actually evaporates faster. So you become a, a, become a better cooling off machine when you're heat adapted. You, your sweat rates also increase. So that also improves how fast you cool off. And the threshold for which you start sweating is reduced. In other words, you start sweating faster um, earlier onset when you're heat acclimated. 
So all those benefits add up to performance gains if you make sure your hydration status is, is good afterwards. Gotcha. Um, is it, yeah, like if you were to, let's say, just take a sauna and not necessary for uh, performance uh, or not, you're trying to, not, not necessarily trying to uh, become heat acclimated, but you're just doing it for, let's say, recovery or just health purposes. Um, how would the like a height rehydration uh, process differ from that of if you're trying to fully like you know optimize your hydration for competition and uh, that kind of thing? I think it it remains the same in regards to if you lose a liter of fluid on average, you're going to lose about 1,200 milligrams of sodium per liter. So you just want to replace that back. And so essentially, you you can weigh yourself before sauna after see how much water you've lost. And then use the 1200 milligram sodium per liter rule that we have in the book. And that's going to rehydrate you. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, cooling off the body then, like uh, we, we've mentioned that uh, salt solutions and the sauna keep your body temperature lower during exercise and postpone the uh, critical threshold uh, after which you stop performing. Uh, so um, obviously we talk about that in the book as well, that, uh, cooling down the body before exercise a little bit with like salt solutions or glycine, for example, or being like heat acclimated, uh, that's a way of performing better. Uh, so what about directly cooling off the body with uh, cold exposure before exercise? Yeah, you can do, so you can do pre-cooling and you can also do cooling during competition if, if your sport allows that, which most do like typically like, you know, in basketball and football, you're on the sidelines. It kind of blows my mind that like, <laughs> athletes and, and their trainers and, and, and staff, they're not actively trying to cool their athletes down. Like they're just sitting there drinking water, waiting to come back into play. Shouldn't be doing that. You should be actively cooling down your athletes. It's going to dramatically improve their performance. Um, it's funny, like maybe after reading this book, you're going to see like NFL teams, like, you know, basically trying to cool glabber skin on their, on their players, which would be cool that they really should be doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so the pre-cooling strategies, you got to be careful. You don't want to use cold water. Um, which is 59 degrees Fahrenheit or less, because in many studies, it actually has been shown to inhibit performance because you're basically cooling the body too much. So you want to kind of use, it's called basically cool water immersion. So there's different ways to cool the body, but mm -hmm. cool water immersion works the best. You can, you can be neck down or if you're a sprinter, just like on the water up to your hip level. But essentially, you know, it's good to keep the water between 64 and 84 degrees Fahrenheit. That way you're not cooling off the body too quick. The goal is to drop core body temperature by 0.3 degrees Celsius, which is about 0.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and typically that takes anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes, about 30 minutes if you're in like a 64 degree Fahrenheit cool bath, probably an hour if you're in an 84. Reason also why you don't wanna use cold, it can actually close the AVAs, the blood vessels that are bringing in cold and actually increase your core body temperature if you jump into too cold, if it mm. uh, you know, it sh shuts down the APAs. Gotcha. Um, so using those strategies, uh, pre-cooling, we do have a chapter on that and that has been shown to dramatically improve performance. The one thing that, that you know, I kind of weigh with athletes in, in doing this is the, the studies that I've looked at have never shown any issues, but like if you're dealing with a fighter who needs to have good blood flow, you you know, is that going to potentially increase an injury? Maybe. So that that's why with like, let's say like a UFC fighter, it might be best to just use glabrous skin cooling, which is the face, the palms of the hands, the bottoms of the feet. That way you're simply cooling core temp and you're not cooling, let's say the Achilles tendon and, you know, potentially increasing a risk of injury mm -hmm. um, in those scenarios. Although what's interesting is the, 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 the cool water immersion for sprinters where they're basically, they're, um, they're in water up to hip level. So they're cooling their Achilles tendons. There wasn't any increase in any injuries, but you always do like a 10 minute warm up after pre-cooling strategies. So that might prevent any potential issues. Yeah. And I think that the increase in that performance can be quite dramatic. So like, I don't recall the specifics, but in one study, like if they cool down the athlete's hands before doing a bicep curl, then they were able to do a lot more um if they're uh, were cooled uh, down compared to not cooling it down so yeah like one of the yeah, biggest 
cutoffs of the performance will be the uh, rise in the body temperature. And if you cool it down beforehand, pre-cooling, then again, it's going to be postponed. Right. And that's sort of like, this was unique about our book is we're trying to get ahead of the problem. Like mm. very few, I, I don't know a single book that really tries to get ahead of the problem by pre-hydrating the salt and fluids, pre-cooling the body. And then in the next chapter, we talk about hitting peak alkalosis to get ahead of the acidosis. Mm -hmm. And so really it's, it's, it's almost like you're, you got this 90 minute window before athletic performance that if you get right, you're going to have a tremendous advantage over, over your opponent. And people are just starting to realize this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, before we talk about the alkalosis, uh, so with the cold, it's uh, instead of doing like an ice bath or a very cold uh, cryotherapy, you would want to do like, yeah, just cool off the forehead uh, cool off the palms of the hands and uh, palms of the feet, uh, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And you can do this many different ways. Like some studies actually will basically wrap the, the quads um, with ice packs. They'll have like a little um, cotton material over the, over the muscle. So it's not directly in contact, but you can pre-cool the body using like simply ice packs. You can use cool um, water immersion um, or you can use the glabber skin, like you said, which is probably the safest way. It just might take a little bit longer than basically going into a cool bath because uh, water basically conduct, conducts cold slash heat two to four times better than air. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. I think we should also yeah just cover the uh, that uh, that when not to do the cold exposure and that kind of thing. So uh, after a workout is not the best idea to to take like a ice bath or a cold shower. And if your goal is specifically muscle hypertrophy or strength, because it can uh, shut down some of the adaptations. Um, whereas like after cardio, it can be fine. But let's say if you're just trying to build muscle and strength, then you don't want to be exposing yourself to cold after the training. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely some evidence that for muscle hypertrophy, potentially muscle strength that you will, I don't know exactly what the actual, like, decrease in strength and hypertrophy really is like, are we talking about a clinically significant difference or not? Um, I don't know. Maybe I think it is important to I, keep that in mind. Yeah. Right? I think it's not going to like decrease. You're not going to get weaker, but you're just going to maybe slow down some of the, uh, adaptations, uh, to a certain extent. Uh, yeah. Like you're not, maybe your progress will be a bit slower compared to someone who doesn't do any, cold exposure at all after but obviously i mean the training and the diet itself will be the first thing that matters uh, but if every other variable is equal then maybe i probably the person who wouldn't do the ice, ice exposure after the uh, training their their process would be a bit uh, faster in terms of muscle hypertrophy at least because the inflammation you need some of the inflammation for uh the muscle growth and muscle swelling so Right, which is almost like why um, adding sauna after after that is going to probably improve gains. And then if you're in like a training camp, then, then cold water immersion is, is great because it, it dramatically brings back your power output um, out to 96 hours. So essentially you're able to produce more power one, two, three, four days after a hard training session if you jump into like, let's say a cold bath for three to five minutes um, because it's shutting down all that inflammation, which is going to lead to um, delayed onset muscle soreness if you don't shut it down fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. So for, for people in intense training camps, like cold water immersion is great, but I personally think cool water immersion would be better because you're, you're, you're basically risking less of what you just talked about. Essentially, if you're using cool water, you're probably not going to shut down the gains as much as cold, but you're probably also going to recoup the body um, better than not doing anything. So it's like, it's probably like the, the best middle ground for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I would agree that, yeah, that too extreme, too much cold will be probably bad, but um, if it's just cool, then like a regular cold shower probably won't like, you know, shut off the gains either. <laughs> like uh, maybe like a one, one, one minute cold shower is not going to do anything, but uh, like a five minute ice bath in uh, uh, five degrees Celsius water probably would. <laughs> right. And I mean, what's interesting too, is like, there's other, other ways to reduce delayed onset muscle soreness, whether it's um, basically massage, like third guns, things like that, foam rollers, um, you know, consuming beetroot juice prior to performance. Um, even, even the salt solutions will help reduce delayed onset muscle soreness. 
um, high doses of omega-3s can help to do that as well. Um, I'm trying to think of what else can potentially, besides having to shut down like all the inflammation with cold water, um, that can improve or reduce delayed onset muscle sore. Oh, the alkalosis too, which leads up to this as well. Um, a lot of the um, muscle soreness, it's not due to the lactate, right? It's due to the actual hydrogen ion release and the acidosis that occurs in the cell when you vigorously exercise. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So can you talk about that then, the alkalinity and alkalosis? Yeah. So there's been, we, we cover several studies on how basically very quickly during vigorous exercise, not just in the interstitial fluid that surrounds tissues, but actually within the muscle cell itself, um, there's a dramatic increase in acid, which is not shown in the blood because the blood has much better buffering systems in regards to keeping the um, acidity at a normal level. Whereas the interstitial fluid and inside the cell, that's going to, um, it doesn't have the buffering systems like hemoglobin and albumin and things like that that can help buffer the acid load. So um, that is what decreases performance and leads to delayed onset muscle soreness is not the lactate that's being produced. It's the acid or the hydrogen ions. And the lactate is there to help. The lactate helps pull the acid out of the cell and lactate gets reutilized as fuel. So lactate is actually a good thing. We, you know, we call it lactic acidosis because it associates with the acid that's being produced, but, but lactate is actually um, an important substance um, for those two reasons. And uh, basically the key here is that you want to get ahead of the problem, which is you want to hit peak alkalosis before competition, which is essentially a serum bicarbonate of around 35 milliequivalents. Most people sit uh, at around maybe 26 um, that's, I mean, carnivores are typically less than that. Most carnivores are probably around 23 milliequivalents per liter of bicarbonate, mm -hmm. where all the benefits you're going to see really is around 35 milliequivalents of bicarbonate. And so studies have shown that if you like drink bicarbonate mineral waters for like three weeks, it dramatically improves combat sport performance, power output, endurance. Um, or if you load with sodium citrates or sodium bicarbonate, which you have to do that appropriately, it's a little complex that can also improve performance and recovery. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. How, how big of an effect would the diet then have? Like if you're eating like a very alkaline diet versus this acidic diet, like this kind of um, folklore about <laughs> those things. Right. So um, a typical carnivore diet will basically lead to um, a net acid production of around 150 milliequivalents, which um, that will lead to acid retention. The kidneys can essentially only get rid of about maybe up to 70 milliequivalents of acid before it starts retaining one milliequivalent for every two and a half milliequivalents over that threshold. And then you have to start breathing out the acid, but in order to do that, you drop your bicarbonate levels. So the key here is that, um, yes, you can breathe out acid, but you do deplete your bicarbonate levels. And the key here is that, yes, what you eat does determine your acid-base status in the body, just from a physiological perspective that the kidneys have a limited capacity for how much acid they can excrete before retention. And from the fact that in order to breathe out any retained acid, you have to deplete bicarbonate in order to do so. In other words, if you're consuming an animal-based diet, which I do, you want to have some type of bicarbonate forming substances to offset the acid load. Otherwise your performance and recovery will probably suffer. Yeah. Um, how much, like, uh, how much would, uh, let's see, some, is there any specific amount or, uh, yeah, would you have to measure? Yeah. The, yeah. So, you, I mean, we have tables on the um, potential renal acid load of foods and uh, we have things that can offset it. So, so five grams of sodium citrate can offset 60 milliequivalents of acid. So essentially if you, if you um, take our tables, you add up your diet um, all the dietary factors and the acid they provide per three and a half ounces. We have tables on that. You can see how much um, of the of acid load your diet is producing. And then you can take X amount of sodium citrate to inhibit that acid. You, you definitely want to be at a zero acid excreting diet. So you don't want to be excreting any acid. That's, that's optimal. And then going even alkaline would be better. Um, but that's sort of how you can figure out how to at least eliminate all the acid um, from your diet. Yeah. So as for reference, then um, like very more 
more acidic foods are like cheese and uh, meats and animal foods and uh, this the uh, our alkaline or bicarbonate richer foods would be vegetables and um, fruits and lemon juice and um, those kind of things. Right. That's why steak and potatoes is actually an amazing uh, combination mm. because uh, it's basically protein carb, right? You, you keep the fat down and you can have good amounts of carbs um, it, with protein and you're not going to gain a lot of fat if you keep the added fats down and the potatoes help offset the acid of the steak. Yeah. And uh, are there like any mineral water brands that have higher amounts of uh, bicarbonate? Gerald Steiner will inhibit one liter of Gerald Steiner will inhibit about 30 milliequivalents of acid. And then there's other waters too. You just got to look at the label and see how much bicarbonate is in there. So Gerald Steiner has 1800 milligrams of bicarb per liter. Um, magnesia is another water that's got about a thousand milligrams per liter. But essentially if you're not consuming sodium citrates, which are supplements that can boost bicarbonate and you're only drinking mineral waters, you got to probably have at least a thousand milligrams of bicarb per liter. And you got to consume about at least three liters for you to really inhibit, you know, acid load of an animal based diet. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, are, are there like any other ways to, uh, reduce the acidity besides diet and water? Like, I don't know any activities just out of curiosity. Um, not that I'm aware of, uh, like a, like, a, like a cold like a cold bath or a sauna they don't affect those things not to my knowledge because the acid is coming from the food and the hydrogens that are being released from the breakdown as well as um, negatively charged um, sulfate molecules too which require negative charged molecules um, in the in the plant foods mm. uh, to, to eliminate it so not to my knowledge is there any way to inhibit acid in the body through anything but like some type of dietary bicarbonate forming substance uh consumption essentially yeah yeah gotcha uh so diet nutrition you mentioned the steak and potatoes <laughs> which are a yeah. pretty good um combo for athletic performance and uh especially like muscle growth um so what are maybe like some key overarching principles and um, main points of when it comes to nutrition for uh, optimizing performance yeah, I mean, one, one key that we just talked about is balancing the acid load. So that's one. Um, you don't want, another key is you don't necessarily have to have a plant food like a potato or a banana to inhibit the acid. You can utilize bicarbonate supplements or sodium citrate um, to do that if you're like totally against plants so or, or bicarbonate mineral waters. Um, but I do think that having maybe 20% of the diet from calories at least standpoint from some type of plants, potatoes, bananas, is, is probably going to improve performance and recovery in an athlete, um, simply from capping off muscle glycogen to reducing the acidosis. So I think an 80-20 balance is pretty good, in my opinion. Um, you can go off that a little bit. Maybe I would say you probably wouldn't want to veer more than 50-50, though, in an athlete. I don't think you should really have more than 50% of your calories coming from plant foods. I think that's probably the max I would ever do. And I really don't think um, having, yeah, so 50% plus. What would, what would be like the reasons or what would be the, let's say, negative effects of getting more than 50% as fans? It's just not enough from a caloric perspective in regards to bioavailable iron, zinc, um, B12, um, protein. It's going to be hard to get for an athlete. There are, their goals for protein, if 50% of their calories or more is coming from plant foods, then you're starting to consume a ton of calories in order to hit that protein um, of about of about one gram per pound is, is another good goal to hit when it comes to um, muscle protein synthesis. And of course, you know, using lean body mass, you, you know, basing it more on how muscular you are is is more evidence-based let's say but like for the general person they're not going to know how much lean their lean body mass is so simply one gram of protein per pound of uh, body weight is a good target to hit for maximizing muscle protein synthesis another goal is to really consume 30 grams of protein about four times a day 30 to 40 grams four times a day is is helps optimize muscle protein synthesis from an athletic performance like muscle building perspective gotcha 
yeah and uh carbs and fats like uh what's the maybe uh ration guidelines for the, those like either low carb how many how many carbs yeah as so post exercise you want to hit like 1.2 grams per kilogram for carbs so essentially like if you're a 70 kilogram um, adult, you want to hit around 85 grams of carbs like within that two hour anabolic window um with probably it depends uh if it's a whole body workout then you definitely want to go probably more 40 grams of protein if it's a, if you're doing a whole body workout um within two hours of exercise yeah yeah um this is the moment we can talk about no carb loading before that with food. So I think that's, you know, that's very common among athletes to carb load before uh, competition, at least, or before harder, harder training sessions. So how do you go about, you know, say, uh, or uh, how big of an effect would carb loading be for uh, an important event and uh, how to do it the proper way? Yeah. So essentially 50 to 75 grams of complex carbs an hour before vigorous um, performance is going to probably help improve endurance uh, by about 8%, which is a pretty significant gain. You can do this many ways. Um, you can take things like maple syrup or, or orange juice. Um, you can do fruits. Um, you can do the glycofuse or um, Vitargo, which is um, basically your top tier sort of like supplemental complex carb. And essentially taking that an hour prior to performance is going to allow it to get out of the stomach so it doesn't inhibit performance. And it's going to help recap your muscle glycogen stores, which you can basically burn through about a third of your muscle glycogen within just like three minutes of vigorous exercise. Gotcha. Um, but what about like uh, carb loading in terms of the, like the night before, like eating a bunch of pasta or something like that uh, to top off your glycogen stores? Um, is it rational to do it? Like, would it be smart to eat like a lot, massive carb meal the night before, uh, or um, would it be better to just wait until the other the uh, an hour and a half before the workout and then start to introduce the carbs? Right. Um, I think between five to eight grams per kilogram of total carbs for the day is a good target for athletes. Um, and when you're talking about vigorous exercise performance, so you're going to go anaerobic, you're going to burn through muscle glycogen. So in those instances, um, having your glycogen stores in the liver and the muscle capped is going to give you better performance. And you can do that by hitting about five to eight grams of carbs per kilogram of body weight. So pretty much around 500 to 800 grams of carbs for the whole day is tip for most athletes that weigh like 160 pounds is going to fully cap your muscle glycogen stores. Now, if you're someone who had to lose weight, a significant amount of weight before competition, you potentially could get benefits up to a thousand grams of carbs because that's about the maximum glycogen storage for both the liver and the muscle. Um, for the for the 24 hours gotcha. prior mm -hmm. yeah and what do you what are the kind of best carb foods like potatoes rice <laughs> to do that yeah i mean it doesn't have to be like um like an undercooked cooled potato it can be um you know a fully cooked potato or um banana um you know but essentially you also want some fructose too you don't want a ton but like you do fructose plus glucose is better than just straight glucose. So, you know, combining those foods, which typically have both fructose and glucose, like fruits, um, is, is a good way to help cap muscle glycogen. And the protein does that as well. So adding protein plus the glucose and fructose sources of foods is going to um, help replete glycogen and help um, basically replete protein to muscle. Gotcha. Yeah um fats though so um a lot of people use like low low carb diets uh and a high fat intake to compensate for that so what do you think it like how does it compare to a high carb intake for let's say at least athletes and um yeah like what, what are the situations where it could be beneficial or when would you uh, use it i think you can probably use um like sort of ketosis and, and higher fat, lower carb diets for endurance performance, but for anaerobic, explosive, vigorous performance, you should be consuming, um, you shouldn't be in ketosis. Let's put it like that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, like just the, 
the data is really clear that at least for the higher highest level athletes, the uh, high carb intakes uh, generally outperform the keto um, uh, diets. Um, maybe like in some ultra endurance uh, sports, it can be a bit um, more, more equal. Um, right. But at least like the keto groups or keto athletes don't tend to outperform the high carb athletes either. So, yeah. And especially in like bodybuilding or um, muscle, muscle, let's say resistance training type of sports, uh, the carb, carb, higher carb intakes generally do, uh, do better at least at the high, high, highest level. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Like if you're, you got to understand that like vigorous exercise is already putting you in like a low carb state. So like then adding low carb on top of that is just, it's too much. It's not needed. It's going to, mm-hmm. like you said, it's going to inhibit performance compared to actually consuming carbs in those scenarios. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, I think that we do cover the did cover quite all the one of the biggest, let's say, epiphanies or <laughs> one of the biggest uh paradigm shifts uh, for a lot of people. I think when it comes to just the yeah, hydration and uh, preloading and uh, pre cooling and those kind of things, I think mo- most people never have heard about those things. Um, and I do think that the book itself will have a ton more uh, that people will learn uh, besides those things and it kind of barely scratches the surface when it comes to just yeah improving everything uh, with uh, pre-exercise strategies and uh, as well as like uh, post-exercise strategies for recovery so yeah everyone both let's say professional athletes and recreational fitness enthusiasts anywhere like whatever your level of fitness is uh, you can still find a lot of uh, valuable information from that and uh, you can definitely apply it and you will see your improvements in um, your performance and just overall uh, fitness. Right. And like you said, like we cover sleep, which is a huge driver of performance and, and ways to optimize sleep. So in, in ways to optimize, there's a whole chapter on immune function and what supplements can help. Um, because as you, as you're an elite athlete, that increases your risk of upper respiratory infections. So we have a strategy and a protocol on things to take to potentially reduce the increased risk of, of, basically getting the common cold or upper respiratory tract infections. So that's important too. Um, but just from a general immune health as well, that chapter is really nice in regards to that. We have recipes, we have dietary plans, which you've never, we've never had um, in our previous two books, which is nice too, which applies to not just the athletes, but to the average person as well. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, yeah, they can check it out and, <laughs> Our, our third uh, co-author is also Tristan Kennedy, um, who we don't have uh, on the podcast today, but uh, yeah, he's also like a wealth of knowledge and uh, definitely contributed to basically putting the book together or uh, giving it the final stamp as uh, as, as a, like a person who is working with a lot of uh, professional athletes as well in the highest level. Yep. Yep. Tristan helped with the, the recipes, which is another thing that um, we hadn't had in our previous two books. So uh, you know, it's great to have meal plans, but to have the recipes and how to make it and how much is really nice too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, yeah, people can get the book on Amazon and, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, it. it was a good talk with you. Good to talk with you again. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to working with you again in the future. Absolutely. Same. Nice talking to you too.